0: Hello, I'm Earl Fontenelle, and you are listening to The Schwepp, The Secret History of Western Esotericism, podcast online at www.schwepp.net. Episode 15, For the Love of Wisdom, The Birth of Philosophy. With the birth of philosophy in the 6th century BCE in the Greek city-states of Ionia, on the coast of present-day Turkey, we can say that the history of Western esotericism has properly begun. Perhaps Thales of Miletus, the thinker usually accorded the official title of first Western philosopher, is not a thinker with strong esoteric credentials himself, but the movement of which he was a part changed everything in the Western world, and we're still living out the effects of that change. In this episode, we're going to address a number of developments in early philosophy with long-lasting implications for our story of Western esotericism. And let's not forget, The story of Western esotericism is basically a story of philosophy, just not the kind of philosophy taught nowadays in philosophy departments at universities. So we might want to start by asking what we mean by philosophy in antiquity, and how that might relate to what we mean by philosophy nowadays. First off, the Greek term philosophia, love of wisdom, does not occur in the earliest writers we know as philosophers, who, like Thales, were writing in the 6th century BCE, There's a strong tradition in antiquity attributing the terms invention to Pythagoras, about whom more very soon, but if we look at the evidence which remains, the terms philosophos, a lover of wisdom, and philosophia, the activity associated with the philosophos, both first appear in Plato and his contemporaries like Isocrates and Xenophon, writing in the 5th and 4th centuries BCE. So this terminology may well have existed before Plato's time, but if it did, we don't have records of it. Thus, philosophy so-called gets invented after about 150 or so years of what we call philosophy. For once, I don't want to quibble too much about our using the term in an anachronistic way to describe earlier thinkers. These people were doing philosophy of some sort, if what we mean by philosophy is investigating and theorizing the nature of the world and of mankind's place in it. But wait a minute, Surely the philosophers were not the first people ever to do this. We only have to look at the Homeric poems or at Hesiod's work, or just think about what human beings are like to see exactly that. People theorizing about the nature of reality and mankind. You're right, gentle listener. So we're going to need a more restricted and useful definition of philosophy if it's going to tell us anything special about this genre. If we turn to Peter Adamson's inestimable podcast on the history of philosophy episode one, we can shamelessly steal his idea that the key feature which distinguishes philosophy from earlier forms of knowledge about why the world is the way it is, is the emphasis on argument. In Hesiod's Theogony, we get a story which tells us how the world came to be, but the poet doesn't argue for his position. He simply tells us what the primordial gods and goddesses got up to, who begat whom, and leaves it there. Great stuff, but not philosophy. The same goes for the Homeric poems. But with the birth of philosophy, we seem to have a new approach in that the philosophers will attempt to argue for their conclusions, to refute one another, and to criticize earlier sources of authority, like the two great poets Homer and Hesiod. So the essence of philosophy is not mere rationality, which humans have always exercised, but the focused application of rationality to a given style of knowledge through argumentation for and against. Now, one could argue against this definition of philosophy, but let's just say that this is what this podcast will mean by philosophy when we use the term in a general way. Obviously, early modern natural philosophers like Robert Flood or Isaac Newton were doing something very different from much earlier philosophers like the ancient Pythagoreans, and will be very attentive to the differences in the self definition of some groups as we discuss them in their context. In other words, Philosophy can be used as a second-order term. This is the usage we've just defined as the act of giving an account of the universe and of man's place in it using the specific methodology of argumentation, or it can be a first-order term in which many different people throughout history will describe themselves as types of philosophers, and we have to be very attentive in that case to exactly what they mean. But our general definition, our second-order definition of philosophy will be a useful term of art an ad hoc definition for our purposes throughout the podcast. So, according to this definition, we're right to say that there were philosophers before people started calling them philosophers. What else can we say about them? Frustratingly little. Most of what the earliest philosophers like Thales actually wrote is lost to us, and we rely heavily on later accounts from later in the classical and late antique periods which are usually paraphrases, and they're often suspect paraphrases at that because the people who quote these early philosophers often have their own understanding of them, possibly misunderstanding, and also often have their own philosophic agenda, like Aristotle, who is the classic case of misquoting earlier philosophers for his own purposes. But we can say with some confidence that the earliest stirrings of what we're calling the philosophic approach seem to have been in the Ionian Greek city-states in the early 6th century. We get Thales, followed in the next generation by Anaximander and Anaximenes, Again, these thinkers' writings are mostly lost to us, but we know that they were concerned with what we would call physical questions. What's the world made of? How does it all work? How did it come to be the way it is? Later authors sometimes refer to this group of early philosophers as the physiologoi, the studiers of nature. Or perhaps to a modern ear, the translation early natural scientists would be a fair one. As we shall see, philosophy soon took on two other major concerns, namely the question of ethics, or how to live the good life, and the question of metaphysics, the first principles of reality which underlie the physical world. And so these earlier thinkers, the physiologoi, were sometimes not seen as fully rounded philosophers in later times. This brings us to another bit of terminology, pre-Socratic philosophy, which is the subject of this particular episode. All the philosophers up to the time of Socrates, who lived from 469 to 399, BCE, are often lumped together under the name pre-Socratic. Again, there's no need to quibble here, but we shall see in a moment that in among the so-called pre-Socratic philosophers, there were several identifiable strains of philosophic activity, and they are utterly, utterly different. So we mustn't think of pre-Socratic philosophy as a single movement. It's a blanket term which we use to speak in a general way of the early philosophical movements, but it tells us very little about what different pre-Socratics were doing. And what they were doing included some very different approaches to the truth. Now, our story may begin in the Ionian city-states in the 6th century BCE. But it starts to get esoteric, you might say, in the generations spanning the 6th and the 5th centuries. And especially in another place entirely. Not the coast of modern-day Turkey, but southern Italy. Now, first of all, what were Greek philosophers doing in southern Italy? What were Greeks doing there at all, you might ask? Well... Italy at this time was not the most happening place culturally. The Romans weren't even on anyone's radar yet. In the 6th century BCE, Rome was a minor regional power among many minor Italian regional powers, with the Etruscans to the north, and to the south, an important series of Greek colonies, which had been growing there since around the 8th century BCE. So the Romans were just about literate at this period. And I mean just about. But the Greeks in the 6th century were not only literate, they were cosmopolitan, with cultural links to the eastern Mediterranean, where the action was culturally. Later on, when the Romans had become highly literate, in part due to the influence of their southern neighbors, the Greeks, they would come to call this region of Italy Magna Graecia, Great Greece, or the Big Greek Territory, something like that. Culturally, southern Italy is Greek in our period. Now, in southern Italy, something happened philosophically which was of central importance to the story of Western esotericism. A number of philosophers flourished here, each of which left an indelible mark on the history of Western esotericism, although each in a very different way. So we can actually say without too much hyperbole or oversimplification that the story of Western esotericism really begins in an identifiable way with Plato, but that Plato's story really begins in important ways in southern Italy In the hundred years or so before his birth. So, what was going on in southern Italy which was so important, and how does it relate to Western esotericism? Firstly, of course, we must mention the great Pythagoras. In a lifetime spanning the sixth and fifth centuries, Pythagoras did some amazing stuff. The problem is we can't tell exactly what he did. Pythagoras was probably from the island of Samos, but came to Croton in southern Italy sometime around 530 BC, probably, and southern Italy and the world would never be the same again. We're going to devote two episodes to Pythagoras and the Pythagoreans following this one, but we should whet your appetite here with a few juicy facts that emerge from the enormous amount of mythology surrounding this great founder of esoteric philosophy. Firstly, the Pythagoreans of Croton in southern Italy are our first example in antiquity of a kind of philosophic brotherhood, and perhaps sisterhood, with their own way of life setting them apart from mainstream society. Lovers of esotericism will immediately see the significance of this. We might be looking here at a secret society in antiquity, a distant origin to the kinds of movements so important in modern esotericism, from Freemasonry to occultist groups of the 19th and 20th centuries. We shall discuss the historical truth of this idea next week, but we can say that this is how many later thinkers read the ancient Pythagoreans. They were the original secret initiatory philosophical movement. Now, ancient Greek society already had a kind of initiatory movement, and we've discussed it in previous episodes, the mystery cults. The Pythagoreans seem to have taken many aspects of mystery culture and given them a radically new twist, while maintaining many recognizably mystic elements of teaching style and approach. So the Pythagoreans, as a movement, the original generation of Pythagoreans, about whom we know frustratingly little, and about whom the vast reams and reams of information we do have are almost certainly legend, are significant for us in that they take the mystic theme or act of initiation and transpose it to a new philosophical context. With the Pythagorean movement, we have something which you might rightly call philosophic initiation. They also take on the mystic theme of silence. As we shall see, Pythagorean silence was proverbial already in Plato's time, and by the time of Iamblichus, and possibly much earlier, the Pythagoreans are thought of in a way which we might recognize as pretty much having all the key elements of later secret initiatory societies. They have secret doctrines hidden within riddling myths and teachings. They practice a strict code of silence about their teachings, which are protected by passwords by which initiates can recognize each other. They're divided into inner and outer grades of students. They claim access to divine wisdom. When the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn was constructed in the 19th century, the ultimate root of their style of organization goes back to the ancient ideas about the Pythagoreans. Not necessarily to the historical reality of Pythagoreanism, I should emphasize again, but definitely to later classical period ideas about this historical reality, to what we might call the history of Pythagoreanism. We also have the troubling and complicated evidence about Pythagoras' teachings. What was the secret wisdom? It seems to have had something to do with mathematics, and perhaps with some kind of esoteric number theory, which is of course another idea with a crucial importance and a very long afterlife for many later esoteric movements. It seems to have had something to do with cosmology, and with ideas about reincarnation, and perhaps an immortal soul and also with ritual practices, and perhaps the kind of activity which used to be described as Greek shamanism. Nowadays the term shaman, as a cross-cultural category, has fallen into disrepute, but the picture which has emerged of Pythagoras as a figure practicing typically shamanic feats, such as bilocation, appearing in two places at once, soul flight, where the soul leaves the body and goes and quests about, seeing the sights, and supernatural acts of insight, all seem to have some historical validity pointing to kind of a shaman figure in the original Pythagoras. We'll get to all of this in a later episode as well, so hold on to your hats for the shamanistic Pythagoras of yesteryear. Pythagoras and the Pythagoreans really are an enigma of Western history, and as we'll see in subsequent episodes, I use that term enigma with a knowing wry smile because the term will crop up again and again as we try to understand Pythagorean modes of esoteric expression. We're dealing with a philosopher held to be responsible for discovering the laws of musical harmony and for remembering his past life as a Homeric hero, for innovating in geometry, remember the Pythagorean theorem, which you learned about in school, and for being able to talk to animals. This is philosophy, but perhaps not philosophy as you learned it in your introduction to philosophy class. There are two more philosophers from our region whom we must discuss as well. They're crucially important for the story of Western thought and Western esotericism. The first is Parmenides of Elia, the father of metaphysics. There's a town in southern Italy called Velia, formerly known as Elia, and this was the home of Parmenides, born sometime in the late 6th century, say 510 BCE or thereabouts. Now, Parmenides was a serious cat. He was heavy. He wrote a poem about half of which is thought to survive, which is not bad going, actually, for a pre-Socratic philosopher. And it comprised two sections, the way of truth and the way of opinion. In the way of truth, Parmenides tells us why there can be only being, because non-being is impossible and even unthinkable, and further elaborates this idea until he has argued, essentially, that being, and therefore everything that exists, since only being exists, is unchanging, unmoving, spherical, and one. Parmenides is thus the father of all radical monists. There can be no multiplicity, there can be no change. All there can be is being, one, eternal, unchanging. Aristotle said that Parmenides uses rational arguments, which are in themselves sound, but arrives at conclusions which are insane we shall look in more detail at this in a later episode whether the way of truth is insane or not it will seriously mess with your head and for me that's enough reason to include it in our podcast but there are other reasons too for one thing parmenides is not simply using logic or not using logic in a way that modern university philosophers would recognize as simply using logic his poem is in hexameter verse like the homeric epics And indeed, most of his vocabulary is the ancient epic lexicon of Homer, repurposed in an unprecedented way for some hardcore metaphysical speculation. He's taking us on a narrative journey. He's not just getting all abstract. He's taking us on a journey, and in fact, Parmenides' poem relates the story of his journey in a divine chariot into an other world, which many scholars want to say is the the underworld, where he is shown the sights by a goddess he is in fact initiated into the mysteries of truth by this goddess. Some of the vocabulary and many of the themes of the poem are drawn from mystery cult in recognizable ways. So Parmenides is not only repurposing Homeric forms for philosophy, but mystic cultural tropes as well. And this side of his thought is generally overlooked by historians of philosophy, as we've mentioned in previous episodes. So we as excavators of secret history have a special interest in it. But we are especially, especially interested in the effect that this giant of early philosophy had on the next great giant of philosophy, Plato. Plato's thought owes a huge debt to Parmenides, not least in the fact that he too will adopt aspects of the mysteries and transform them for his own philosophical purposes. But more essentially, Plato, like Parmenides, is obsessed with the idea of being, of that which truly is. And this obsession some way defines Western thought down the ages. Parmenides is the first author we know of who really rejects the evidence of the senses in a wholesale way. He rejects the everyday world of matter and bodies and stuff, because it's all changing and untrustworthy. He looks in the opposite direction with a penetrating stare and seeks the truth about things without using the things themselves as evidence. Plato is motivated by a similar distrust of the stuff The universe seems to be made out of so individual bodies individual phenomena stuff that goes on in the everyday world none of it is permanent and so none of it can be the truest exemplar of being when newton in the 17th century complains about substance thinking that is the fact that pretty much everyone or at least pretty much every philosopher in his day thought that there must be eternal substances which possess an essence and have being and other philosophically accessible properties Newton quite sensibly asks the question, why must we assume that there are such substances? He is struggling with the legacy of early Greek philosophy and with the ghost, at least, of Parmenides. The modern philosopher Martin Heidegger sometimes reads like an esoteric devotee of Parmenides. Other monist schools, notably Advaita Vedanta, but certain Western thinkers too, have uncanny parallels with Parmenides. We shall return to this thinker in a few weeks' time and see if we can't come to grips with the hidden specter haunting Western thought, the specter of is the specter of being in itself. There's one final thinker of the Italian lineage, which we must consider, and this is Empedocles, who lived in the 5th century in the Sicilian colony of Acragas. We'll have much to say about this gentleman in due course as well, but let's have a quick preview here. Empedocles is old school, like Parmenides, in that he wrote poetry, and we're lucky to have a few fairly decent amounts of his work surviving. In fact, some of it has recently been discovered in um, papyrus fragments. Most scholars divide his work into two poems, entitled On Nature and Purifications. But there are scholars who think that these were separate parts of the same long poem, a bit like The Way of Truth and The Way of Opinion in Parmenides' poem, two sections. Now, Purification is a theme familiar from the Mysteries, and Empedocles was definitely part of a tradition which can loosely be called Pythagorean, drawing on mystic materials for philosophic or proto philosophic purposes. He was living in Sicily at a time which we might call, in terms of the history of philosophy, the Pythagorean diaspora. As we shall see, after the collapse of the Pythagorean government in southern Italy. Wait a minute, did you just say Pythagorean government? You mean these mystical, mathematical, reincarnationist, vegetarian esotericists were in charge, politically, in southern Italy? Yes, gentle listener, that is what I am saying, but you'll have to tune in next week to get the whole story. Now, as I was saying, as we shall see, after the collapse of the Pythagorean government in southern Italy, a whole movement of very different thinkers emerged, seemingly out of the remnants of the original Pythagorean movement. They were, as I say, varied, but recurring elements include an interest in cosmology and number, and in vegetarianism and reincarnation, and Empedocles checks all these boxes. He tells us not only that his soul was the product of a particularly interesting sequence of incarnations, but that he is in fact a god in human form. So that's all really cool, and we get loads of interesting legendary materials relating to Empedocles, his life, his death, and so on. He did lots of magical stuff during his life. but. Empedocles is also the first known reference to the theory of the four classical elements, fire, air, earth, and water. We should pay strict attention here when we explore this thinker, as his elemental theory had an absolutely seminal influence not only on esotericism, and of course on alchemy in particular, but on Western esoteric thought in general, and Western thought more generally. There's much more that can be said about Empedocles, but we'll leave it there for now. A little recap here might be useful, especially for those who aren't specialists in pre-Socratic philosophy. So, here are the three overarching points I hope I've made in the course of this podcast. I'll just emphasize them again, because they are themes that will be following us through subsequent episodes. 1. The early philosophic movement, starting in the Greek cities of Ionia in the 6th century, and never really stopping ever since, was a total grab bag. It involved everything from people concerned essentially with what we would call questions of physics, all the way to the other end of the spectrum, people expounding secret traditions which seem to have been developments of materials already present in the Greek mystery cults, what you might call an evolution of mystic teachings into new forms. It's only in retrospect, really, that we can call all of these movements by a single name, philosophy. We have no reason to think that an Empedocles saw himself as doing the same sort of thing as a Thales or an Anaxagoras. Although he may have done so, certainly by the time of Plato, this whole range of authors will be surveyed by one and the same author, Plato, and later by Aristotle, as a kind of movement which they call philosophy. Two, although we may define philosophy as a genre with both an interest in answering questions about how the universe is and an essential core practice of argument as a way to differentiate it from other forms of knowledge, say scriptural revelation or storytelling we should now be aware, if we weren't already aware, that early philosophy could in fact contain very strong elements of both revelatory knowledge and of myth, that is of storytelling, of narrative. And of course the early philosophers might choose traditional forms of expression like the epic hexameter poem or the mystic saying as vehicles for their teaching. And please don't think that this tendency stops once we come to Socrates, Plato himself is one of the great storytellers of all time, as we shall see, nor is he the last philosopher who did philosophy through the medium of myth. Three, something special seems to have happened in Southern Italy. In this place, and this time, the end of the 6th century up until Plato's day, really, we have a flowering of very different thinkers who nevertheless had a unique influence on Western esoteric thought, both in their own right and as transmitted by Plato and his successors. So Pythagoras, Pythagoreanism, Parmenides, and Empedocles, whom I think it is fair to call a particularly influential Pythagorean, rather than considering him as a total standalone theorist, all will have a huge part to play in the story of Western esoteric thought. So that's all for this week's overview of early philosophy. Until next time, be like the true teachings of the Pythagorean Brotherhood, and stay esoteric.